Welcome to Talk of the Town on 2SER, in which we bring you coverage of events around Sydney every Sunday night. I'm Steph Leong. Earlier this year, as part of Vivid Ideas, the University of Technology Sydney's Dr Belinda Middleweek, Dr Alan McKee and Eurydice Aroni came together for a panel discussion called Is This the End of Intimacy? The discussion was moderated by Dr Honey Van Ryswick. If you are sensitive or have young ears close by, please switch off now as the following discussion contains swearing and frank discussions about human sexuality. Otherwise, sit back and listen to a free-ranging talk about sex robots, sex work, porn and the future. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers today. Um, start with Professor Alan McKee, who is an expert on entertainment and healthy sexual development. He holds an Australian Research Council Discovery Grant entitled Pornography's Effects on Audiences, Explaining Contradictory Research Data. He recently completed a welcome grant entitled Investigating Mediated Sex and Young People's Health and Wellbeing and an ARC linkage grant with True, previously Family Planning Queensland, to investigate the use of vulgar comedy to reach young men with information about healthy sexual development. He was co-editor of The Girlfriend Guide to Life and co-author of Pornography, Structures, Agency and Performance by Polity Press in 2015. That's enough. That's <laughs> enough. That's far too much. I could go on and on. You make us. Very impressive. Um, and we also have Dr Eurydice Aroni, who's a senior lecturer in journalism at UTS, researching the history of the contemporary sex workers' rights movement. Um, she's a producer of many radio documentaries about sex work for the ABC and for international broadcasters. Eurydice is also a member of the Scarlet Alliance, Australia's peak sex worker representative body. And next to me, um, Dr Mil uh, Belinda Middleweek is a senior lecturer also at the University of Technology, Sydney, and her research focuses on gender and journalism, as well as mediations and technologies of intimacy. Her work has been published in the journals Sexualities, Feminist Media Studies and Crime Media Culture. She's the author of Real Sex Films, The New Intimacy and Risk in Cinema, um, published in 2017 with John Tullock. Um, by Oxford University Press. Um, and on the next slide, we just have an example of the work that Belinda has been doing um, around narratives of um, sex robots in the media and, and basically how that's influencing the ways in which um, we as a society are thinking about sex robots and AI. So if we could start by just asking you, Belinda, about what's, what's the sort of... I mean, it's a very recent history of... Um, the, the AI sex robot um, and the difference between sex dolls that we probably sort of um, can conjure up um, and the, the more recent iteration of the sex robot. Yeah, so uh, sex dolls are, are, are life-sized uh, dolls. They're around uh, hyper-realistic, I should say, hyper-realistic dolls. They're around 70 to, I understand, 140 pounds. They have a silicon skin that's wrapped around uh, an articulated skeleton that's made of PVC or metal. Uh, they're really quite extraordinary, very, very lifelike. 
Uh, whereas sex robots are the more sophisticated version of uh, the sex dolls. Now, sex robots have artificial intelligence. Uh, they can move their head. They have an animatronic head. They can blink. Uh, they can speak and, and have a conversation. A, a, they have a, um, like a rudimentary chatbot-type system in them. Uh, and... Uh, uh, well, you actually, you can see just up there. Great, I'm glad they've got that slide there. So we have Lars and the Real Girl. That's the sex doll. And I'm not sure why the head... Uh, it should be switched the other way around. So the sex doll there is on the right and the sex robot is on the left. I think it must have been a mirroring problem there. Sorry about that. Um, so we have Harmony on our left-hand side, who's the first world's first commercially available sex robot. Uh, and uh, Matt McMullen, who's uh, giving her a bit of a hug there, he's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's actually a sculptor and he started uh, a company uh, called Abyss Creations and that's his, uh, it's his prototype. And on the other side, you'll probably remember Lars and the real girl, Bianca, the sex doll. Uh, so that's just an illustration of the difference there. Um, funnily enough, Matt McMullen actually made Bianca for the film Lars and the Real Girl. So, uh, yeah, so that's, um, that's Harmony. We do have another slide. Would you like me to yeah. kind of talk through... Uh, slide after this, the slide after you this the, one. The history, yeah. There we go. Okay. So this is kind of a potted history of, of sex robots. We have the very unfortunate-looking Roxy <laughs> over here. I'm really sorry. Um, she was premiered, launched in 2010 at the Adult Entertainment Expo in Las Vegas. She had a mouth permanently agape. She had her legs akimbo for the, for the entire uh, expo. And she was repudiated by all attendees. It was such an embarrassment, apparently, to have her there. But anyway, she's, she's a very early uh, sex robot. She has a number of different personality types uh, that are quite alliterative. We have Wild Wendy, S&M Susan, Young Yoko, which apparently is an 18-year-old sex robot. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's Roxy. Uh, on the far right-hand side, we have Samantha. Now, Samantha's a bit of a backyard sex robot babe. She was uh, created by a Barcelona-based uh, engineer by the name of Dr. Sergi Santos. Now, she has a, a number of different features, and one including a, a moral code. So if you haven't sufficiently wooed her, she will refuse your advances. Now, that raises a whole series of questions, philosophical questions, about if she's saying no and you press on, are you raping a robot or is it simulated rape? So, yeah, um, some problems there. She also has family mode. Family mode means that she can play with the kids and you don't have to worry about her saying, you know, any words beginning with C or D or F, um, which is handy. Uh, and then we have Harmony, Harmony being my personal favourite because she is the most sophisticated of all the sex robots. She was released last year. She'll set you back about $15,000 US. Uh, she, uh, what else can I tell you about Harmony? Uh, she has a lilting Scottish accent, which I, which kind of is a, is a 
bit of a surprise. It's incongruous, rather, given she looks like something out of Baywatch. Uh, so she has a lilting Scottish accent, so I, I don't know. Hi, darling, how to meet you, or nice to meet you, or That's Pakistani. Like that. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. I was kind of going for Sean Connery, clearly missed the mark there. Uh, so, yeah, so, so that's Harmony. She's, uh, she's the most sophisticated, the world's first commercially available sex robot. Uh, the others, Roxy is a little hard to purchase, uh, as far as we know, so we don't actually know whether she is commercially available, but I don't... I hope this is being, isn't being live-streamed because I don't want to be sued by Douglas Hines, who is her maker, uh, a true companion, and uh, he gets very cranky, apparently, and sues people who say that uh, she isn't commercially available. So um, I'm just going to say that, that you might be able to buy her for $9,999 US. So that's the sex robot market at the Excellent. Moment. So, okay. as I said, Harmony's just been released last year. So it's it's a very it's relatively new. It's a niche market. Okay, great. So we've got um, the the nature of the the sex robot in mind now as we move to the provocation for this panel, which is is this the end of intimacy? So we have experts on our panels spanning um, sex work, pornography, uh, Alan, and then. Um, uh, the AI sex robot sex doll. So can I just ask you each to respond to the question of what is intimacy and, and what is sex and what, what's the relationship between intimacy and sex? So you, you, you to see. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, okay, so they used to describe... I've, got, I've just got a couple of things to say yeah. about that. They used to call sex euphemistically to have intimate relations with someone, yeah? So... That's how we used to think or intimacy went hand in hand with sex. It was, the, it was the only way you were really allowed, you know, that defined sex in a way. But I think we've come a long way since then and I, thank God we've been able to um, make changes or the world has made changes so that the sex doesn't have to be intimate anymore. And I think it would be absurd to think that it's always part of sex or that it's the best part of sex. And in terms of sex work, um, intimacy can be part of sex. Uh, you can definitely have an intimate relationship with a sex worker over time, the way that you can have an intimate relationship with anybody. But a lot of clients go and see sex workers because they, it's less complicated they, they don't necessarily want to have intimacy every time they have sex. So, for me, I can't really define it, but I can kind of manage it. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Good. That's it from me. What about you, Alan? How do you respond to... Um, so, my name's Alan McKee, and I have a lilting Scottish accent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a gay man, and I think that gives me a certain perspective on these issues because for the vast majority of my life, we were not allowed to have sex within marriage because we weren't allowed to be married, and so that gives me a certain perspective on these things. I'm not a theological historian, but I, taking what, what Eurydice was saying about historically how intimacy and sex or love and sex have been related... We do have, I think everybody has a tendency to think that the way that their culture does things at this time now is the way that everything has always been. 
and that's never the case. And it's certainly true about the relationship between love and sex, because it has only been very limited historical periods where love and sex have been seen to go together. So even in our Christian, I mean, most of what the dominant discourses tell us about love and sex today comes from a Christian tradition in Western countries. And even within that, there are profound differences. As I say, I'm not a theological historian, so anybody who is, please put your hands up and interrupt, because I'm just going here from some, some books I've read. Who knows? But as I understand it, you have at least two broad traditions within Christianity. The Pauline tradition from the writer St. Paul thinks that sex is awful and nobody should have it at all. So Paul's writings in the New Testament basically say, get married if you have to, just if you can't contain your sexual urges, but the ideal would be if you don't have sex at all. So from, from St. Paul's view, love is great and sex you should only have ideally the three or four times in your life when you want to have babies. Now that's not the dominant tradition now in Western Christian countries. Now it's actually the, the puritanical tradition um, which has, has um, taken over. And interestingly, because puritanical sounds anti-sex, puritanical isn't anti-sex, Pur Purita puritanism says you should only have sex to express intimacy. Mm. So that is one part of the Christian tradition, but it's only one. Um, and it's only one way of seeing it. Now, it's because, as I say, from a queer culture, we didn't have marriage, and now we do, which is interesting. We can talk about the kind of impact that's had on debates. But the queer community have been proud and brave experimenters on the relationships between sex and love. And you can have sex without love, and you can have love without sex, or you can have sex and love together, and any of those can work really well. We were the ones, perhaps, not who invented fuck buddies, but who championed and honed the fuck buddy tradition. Um, friends with benefits was a, a very important part of, of queer traditions. And on the other side, we also um, experimented with and honed families of choice, where you build relationships that are stronger than biological family relationships that do not have sex involved in them. Mm. So, from my perspective, there are points at which sex and intimacy overlap. There are points at which sex without intimacy can be great, and many instances where intimacy without sex can be great. Mm -hmm. So uh, from a moral perspective, my only concern is the idea of the puritanical nuclear family where you get all of the intimacy and all of the sex that you need from one other human being with no other intimate friendships or any other sexual partners seems like a really bad idea. <laughs> so in terms of, um, of intimacy, we know that newer discourses of intimacy are all about the expression of intimacy being a, a physical thing and also an emotional thing. So we're intimate with people physically and, and emotionally. Um, when it comes to... We don't have a lot of research about uh, sex robot users because it's still such a niche market. But sex doll users, we do have some data on and in terms of their intimate relationships with their sex dolls. And what's really interesting is that intimacy figures highly in those relationships. In fact, there was a study done in 2012 that found, and that was of sex doll users, and it found that 70% purchased a sex doll for sexual gratification purposes, mm. but 30% purchased a sex doll 
because they wanted a, a companion, because they wanted intimacy. Now, that was 2012. 2018, there was a study done only a few months ago, because it was the end of 2018. That figure was much higher. It was at 47% of sex doll users purchasing a sex doll because they wanted companionship, because they wanted intimacy. So it's, it's really quite, quite extraordinary when we're talking about uh, artificial partners, when we're talking about technological others, that intimacy figures so highly in, in those relationships. And, and I think surprisingly so, when I first started this research, I really assumed that it was all about sex, it was all about the physical act. But, um, but I've been very surprised to find that it, intimacy is, is so important for people who have these, um, these partners. So what about the, the idea, I mean, behind the question, is this the end of intimacy, that um, sex robots, the same with, say, uh, online pornography, and perhaps sex work are all um, symptoms of an increasingly socially isolated world and you know a, a world that's going more online uh, a world that is we, we hear all the time a world that's more uh, lonely for lots of reasons neoliberalism but also um, increasing digitalization do you see that in each of your areas of work that, that there's that these are say pornography is producing loneliness or sex sex robots sex dolls produce a kind of loneliness or the availability of sex work you were there hasn't been, you were yeah, there hasn't been an increase in the number, in the percentage of male clients seeing female sex workers as far as the research goes, 20 years. So, um, and that's the period we're really talking about in yeah. terms of AI and, um, and fr you know, fractured relationships and online sort of emotional connections. So, um, so it hasn't, um, that hasn't been reflected in terms of users of sex workers. Mm -hmm. There was a large study um, in Australia. They surveyed uh, approximately 10,000 men um, and it was uh, re uh, men who, who had been clients of sex workers was around 16% of all Australian men. Um, but only just about 2% had seen a sex worker in the last year. Mm -hmm. So that gives you an idea of, of, of the percentage of men and the types of men who are seeing sex workers. And again, I don't think there's been a big change in the types of men. The only difference between clients of sex workers and non-clients of sex workers was that clients of sex workers tend to be slightly older, um, older men and um, uh, less educated and um, had more casual sex. So they were the only significant differences that they found in a large group of men between men who, who saw sex workers and men who didn't. Mm -hmm. So, And I don't think that's changed either in Australia since the 1990s. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't play out that there's any, you know, change. There is a change, I think, in terms of the intimacy between sex workers and clients because of online. And this is just my own observation. Um, uh, I've got some slides later that sort of show it, but, uh, but basically because clients can communicate with sex workers so much easier than they used to, um, they, they have an opportunity to develop 
more intimate relationships with them. Like this one, the, the, the slide over there is from a sex worker. There's a lot of sex workers use online for a variety of things, like to communicate, to advertise, to advocate. They're very, you know, they're, they're activists, a lot of them. This is a Canadian sex worker. Now, she put that up. This had nothing to do with me. I was just hunting for stuff. She says, you are safe with me. These are to her clients. Um, intimacy is about sex, but intimacy is about truth. When you realise you can tell someone your truth, when you can show yourself to them, when you stand in front of them and, and their response is, you're safe with me, that's intimacy. Now, she just posted that. And there's so many clients replied to that. And so many clients liked it because of, you know, and that had nothing to do with me. Clients saying things like, um, uh, I was, yeah, I'm not handsome, not fit, not hung, not skillful. I'm the boy girls walked past in high school. I'm an awkward, overweight, sweaty, middle-aged man, but I try to be polite, decent, respectful, engaging, gentle, kind to the sex workers who make us feel special. Thank you. And there's dozens of replies like that. So sex workers are, because of online and because they're so visible online and they're, they're, their clients can get to them, they're developing intimate relationships, I think, in faster and easier than they've ever done before. And that's part of their service. That's part of their emotional labour. And it's you know, and the, but the, the worst thing about it is that in most, uh, for sex workers, for sex workers, the worst thing about it is they can have these intimate relationships with their clients, but in most places in the world, what they're doing is illegal. So that, that makes it harder for them to draw safe boundaries around what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the downside is, yeah, that so they can't... They can manage things, but they don't have the backup to manage things. Mm -hmm. So not, not in a jurisdiction like New South Wales, because... No, not in New yeah. South Wales and New yeah. Zealand, but that's two places in the whole world. Right. Do, the rest of the world, Canada, mm -hmm. it's illegal to be a client in Canada. Right, OK. Yeah? So that's why we've, um, we've blanked out all the... We've um, erased, uh, you know because it's illegal to be a client. So what you're saying is that intimacy for sex workers is part of the labour that they see themselves doing yes. and definitely not something that's at odds with what they work. It's, in fact, something that they kind of tout as, as part of the service. Yes, it's part of their service. Yeah. And, and the girlfriend experience um, service, which is quite new, really, although yeah. call girls and and um, escorts and, high, you know, high-end sex workers in the past, courtesans, obviously, provided that kind of service. Now we have girlfriend experience mm -hmm. where the, 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 the sort of intimate um, services are, are negotiated, like, I will hold your hand, we will go out and talk, um, you, you will let me kiss you. So all those things are negotiated beforehand and they're the sorts of things that, that some sex workers will provide and others won't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, girlfriend experience. You know, you'll only give me things and yeah, yeah. stuff like that. And so in that sense, something like an AI robot is not an encroachment on the market of I don't sex think, work. I don't know any sex workers who feel threatened by robots. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that they feel that they will be um, uh, something they can use yeah. in their work. Yeah. Definitely, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, but sex workers have all, uh, you know, they're very adaptable and they've always used 
dildo, lots yeah. of tools, you yeah. know, lots of, there's lots of tools of the trade. And I think, I'm guessing, because I've never seen any research specifically on this, other people here might know research around this, but I've never seen research that's specific to how sex workers feel about robots. So I don't know, but you don't get any, any indication of it online. Yeah. You know, and I have a lot of, um, a lot of contact with sex workers online. Yeah. Yeah. So what needs are people being are having met? So we've got sex and intimacy. So you really see you're sort of saying that, that basically it's just the average person going to a sex yeah. because there's nothing much you can you can sort of say that's going to There's no different to any other men. No. Um, and Alan, what about in your research? What what needs do you see being met when, when you say so you do research around um, porn or stranger sex? What what um, sort of, that's an interesting question. I haven't quite finished yet with the previous question because okay. what we'd been one of the things we've been talking about is the fact that robots might be new, but they're not a new phenomenon. Um, objects to give sexual pleasure mm -hmm. have a long tradition, and I mean vibrators are, are the obvious one there. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and interestingly, vibrators have been th seen as a threat to intimacy as well. There's numerous American conservative states where vibrators have been illegal because they got in the way of the proper relationships between um, marital hu husband and, and wife sex. So um, it's not, it's new, but it's nothing new. And that's the same kind of thing that I feel about the questions we were asking before about, are things changing these days? Whenever you hear anybody asking a question that involves the phrase, these days, you know they don't know what they're talking about. Because as soon as you look at cultural history, it's the same thing we've always had. And it's fascinating. I'm fascinated. Maybe you're not fascinated. You didn't come here for cultural history, but I'll tell you about the invention of the novel in the 18th century. And when the, the, when, when the novel was becoming a popular genre, you'd know about this as well, um, one of the most popular uh, types of novel was the, the romance. Not necessarily in the sense of men and women falling in love, but in melodramatic, dramatic stories, often that did have men and women falling in love. And there was intense concern in public debate at the time that a generation of young women was being destroyed by romance novels because they were spending all of their afternoons lying in bed reading romance novels and not going out and um, going to balls to, to meet nice young princes that they could marry. Um, at the start of the 20th century, intense concern about the impact of telephones on young people because they were sitting around in their houses telephoning up and they could telephone total strangers and their parents had no control over who they were speaking to on the telephone. So they could end up in completely inappropriate relationships, which were virtual relationships and not real relationships. It was the end of the world as we knew it. So every generation panics about new communications technologies. And of course, that's right and proper, and eventually, perhaps, the one will arrive that destroys human race, not before climate change destroys us, but eventually, there might be something. Yeah, that's a throwaway comment, but in terms of things to worry about, I think there's things to worry about that rank for me a lot higher than sex robots. It's not going to destroy us. When I hear people worrying about online porn destroying a generation of young men, there's a lot of things to worry about before that. So every generation worries about the impact of new communications technologies on the way that relationships work, always with a blinkered perspective that doesn't understand how things have been very different at different times in culture anyway. Which is not to say that everything's fine. Things are fucked. <laughs> but they're fucked because patriarchy is fucked and because the gender roles that men and women are forced into are fucked. And even though things are changing, and they're changing for the better, and they're changing so dramatically, and every generation of men has better attitudes towards uh, women than their parents did, and that's great. And yet, when we did focus groups a few years back, six years ago, we did focus groups with 14-year-old 
men, uh, girls and boys, to find out where they found out about sex from entertainment, from their parents, from schools, um, from peers. And their attitudes were fucked. And one of the things that was really upsetting was that out of, um, we spoke to, I think it was about 100 people altogether, 50 young girls, 14, 15 years old, one of them said it was okay to masturbate. Mm. The rest of them said that's for lesbians and desperados, and down there is for boys to touch. Mm. So there are awful, awful attitudes and prehistoric gender attitudes still being preached to young people, and that really worries me. There are real things to worry about in this world about gender attitudes and how the hell... Now, luckily, when kids leave school, women start to accept it's okay to masturbate when they leave school. Schools are kind of massive institutions for imposing conservative gender views on the world. But the sex robots aren't on my top ten things, of worry to, to, things to worry about for destroying a generation of young men and women's attitudes towards sex. <laughs> and, and just to pick up on Alan's comment about uh, sex robots are really nothing new um, and that we've been playing around with and engaging with sexual artefacts for, for a long time. That long time is actually 28,000 years. So the first right. dildo was found in Germany by archaeologists in 2005. It measured 20 centimetres <laughs> by 3 centimetres in girth. I'm just imagining a ruler there. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> it was highly polished stone. And I, I still can't work out how the archaeologists didn't think it was part of some mortar and pestle yeah. or it was a baton. <laughs> like, how did they know that it was a phallic? It was clear... Well, that's what they said, actually. It was clearly a phallic representation. Mm. So, so there you go. Mm. So, and it was, yeah, from the upper Paleolithic period. So we have been mm. using sex toys, whether they're primitive and 28,000-year-old pieces of polished stone or sex robots for a very long time. So I, I think that sex robots yeah. are on this continuum of it's just kind of the latest uh, technology. And, and indeed, there is a moral panic, isn't there, about every new form of technology. You think of the radio. I mean, the radio was considered to be devil's work, and that was even before telemarketing. Hmm. Um, <laughs> And then, of course, you know, television as well. I don't know about you, but I remember mum used to say to me, don't sit so close to the television because you're <laughs> going to ruin your eyesight. Uh, so, and, and, and that hasn't happened. Uh, so I guess, uh, yeah, there, there is certainly a moral panic about each new invention, each new technology. And, and, and I feel as if sex robots are just part of that. And indeed, we, we tell ourselves that story about technology separating us from each other, the technology is bad, that it's going to lead to anime and social isolation. And in fact, the biggest proponent of that particular theory is an MIT professor by the name of Sherry Turkle. And she argues uh, in a book that was very appropriately titled Alone Together, that that is our relationship with each other when we are immersed with technology, and that's all we do. We just use technology. So, and I, I, I see it as being like a kind of, like a silent disco or a mobile club where you've got a whole crowd of people and they've got the wireless uh, headphones on and they're just kind of dancing to their own beat, dancing to the music, but from an outsider's perspective, it just looks like they're just bobbing up and down like apples in a barrel and they're not interacting with one another. They're totally immersed in the technology. 
Um, I actually tried to do that with a bunch of students in a lecture. I tried to simulate uh, a silent disco. Uh, it, it didn't work out very well, but it was a, <laughs> it was a good try. <laughs> Um, anyway, but I, I think that there are so many ways that we connect online. I, I'm not, I don't agree with Sherry Turkle, with the MIT professor. I think that, uh, and we know, we know in our, our daily experience that, that we use Skype and, and, and Zoom to, to video conferencing tools to connect with, with people on the other side of the world. We use our mobile phone to, to text and to make phone calls and to take pictures of, of whatever we happen to be eating at that particular moment because we want to share the experience with someone else. So I think technology is, is facilitating um, more connection with each other. Hmm. Do you have thoughts on that? Because I've got more stuff I want to say, but it's uh, not a monologue. No, go ahead, Alan. No. So, yes, um, I think that the point of difference will come when we reach the matrix <laughs> and when it is impossible to distinguish between reality and representation. However, I think we're a very, very long way from that yet. And every moral panic about new communications technology has rested on that assumption that the young girl reading their novels couldn't distinguish between the fantasy of the novel and the reality, that people playing video games can't distinguish between shooting up for a zombie and shooting somebody in real life, that people watching pornography can't distinguish between the actors in pornography and the women they're having sex with. And it's never been the case that all of the research shows that human beings from about the age of two onwards, so kind of under two is a problem. You don't want to give people under two a gun, but two onwards, people can um, tell the difference between what is a representation and what is reality, apart from people who are mentally ill. And that is, we can't manage the whole of our culture on the basis of how people who are mentally ill will react to things. There's a whole different um, set of institutions for doing that. But at the moment, um, I don't know if any of you have actually seen any videos of the sex robots in action. Anybody? They, you're not going to mistake them for a human being. They're really, they're not even close. It's kind of like they're creepy and they're weird and their mouth just goes like that while it says pre-recorded phrases while it's got dead eyes. It's not, you don't have to worry at this point about people getting confused between reality and the representation. Siri, it's not in control of us. Technology... <laughs> Um, I can't use Siri because she can't understand a Scottish accent. So I have to type <laughs> things in. The machines are not indistinguishable yet, and the sex robots certainly aren't. Mm -hmm. So, Belinda, what, um, what does your research say about how people are engaging with sex robots? And what, what do people... I mean, obviously, they have sex with them, but, but what are their relationships like with them? What, what's the sex like? What's the intimacy like? What are they sort of doing with them? Well, according to Matt McMullen, apparently having sex with a robot is, is a bit like uh, when, you, when you land a plane in a new city, like when you're on a flight mm. and you, you're coming down and you're, you're kind of looking out to this brand new city that you've never been to before and then you touch down and there's that enormous sense of relief and I'm imagining that's, um, you know, post-orgasm or something. But uh, that's his metaphor for... And he's the... As I said, the, the designer of sex robots. Interesting that he has an arts background, being a sculptor. Mm -hmm. um, these are works of art, actually. Mm -hmm. In terms of motivations for why someone would buy a sex robot, a lot of them are collectors. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Mm. That they're, they're doing so because they, they hang the sex robot on the wall. It's, 
it's Home Depot kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so and and they really they appreciate it as as art. So for art's sake, rather than for <laughs> fuck's sake, I suppose. <laughs> um, so it's not like a, a sort of replacement thing. It's it's like an added extra, or mm. like it's, a, it's its own niche thing that someone's doing. So it's about sex, but about something else. There are a lot of reasons. So mm. yes, about sexual gratification. Yes, because it's it's a it's a collectible. It's an art item that appreciates like like another art item. Mm. Actually, that'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. I wonder. I wonder. Well, I mean, it's a significant outlay. Yeah, it's an yeah, investment. It is. We're talking yeah. fifteen thousand dollars for Harmony being uh, not totally not with all the specs. So, I mean, if if you had all the specs, you know, the price goes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are others who who buy uh, sex robots for companionship as I said before, because they, they want to be intimate mm. with, with a partner, mm. um, albeit an, an artificial partner. Um, there are those who, who use sex robots as a fetish. It's, it's mm. part of their, their uh, lovemaking with their real-life human partner. They incorporate it into their relationship. Mm. And I've read a, a number of um, uh, online discussion uh, fora that... Uh, people are kind of writing in and saying that that's how they use their sex doll and um, that would be how they'd use their sex robot as well. Uh, so, yeah, so there are lots of different reasons. In fact, we've even diagnosed, psychologists have even diagnosed a, a new condition, a new sexual preference or, or uh, yeah, I guess you'd call it a preference, um, digisexuality and technosexuality. Hmm. And they're, they're people who uh, use... A piece of technology and incorporate that into their sexual activity. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a broad church, isn't it? A um, piece of well, technology. If we're including vibrators, then that's yeah. yeah. Maybe I don't know. I, yeah. what, what percentage of women have ever used a vibrator? I have no idea. Or a dildo? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. You don't know? don't know? No. Anybody know? know? Anyone know? <laughs> it would be more than two percent. I'd imagine huh? more than two percent. Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I do know that women make up 10% of the sex robot market. This is oh, according 10%. to Matt McMullen. That's interesting because well, he says in terms 10%. of female clients, it's like 1%, you know, women who, who use male sex workers, it's only about 1% of women. Right. Yeah, it's very low. The, uh, that's in Australia, but I think there's other places where there's a higher take-up of women. Right. In places like with... Um, uh, in, in developing countries, actually, yeah, where women from developed countries go on sex tourism holidays, mm-hmm. uh, there there would be there would be a high percentage in certain in certain areas. Right. Yeah, Dominican Republic's one, probably Africa. Yeah. yeah, where European women go and buy sex services. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, perhaps. But I haven't seen any the... specific studies. I've seen some specific yeah. study about D- Dominican Republic, but it's very hard to get figures about clients. Mm. Yeah, it's very hard. Mm. It's even harder to get information about clients than it is about sex workers, because sex workers are, uh, are in so many places. What they do is illegal, or there's a, a raft of laws around them, which means that they come into contact with institutions. Um, both, you know, penal institutions, health, um, you know, they're monitored in certain ways which gives you data about them automatically, you know, in certain situations, whereas clients aren't monitored like that. 
as a whole, except where they're in, now illegal to be a client, like in places like Sweden, the United States, um, you know, where they send clients to John schools um, so they can get information on them that way. You know, they, 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 clients in America now, if you're charged as a male client of a sex worker, you can be forced to do um, mandatory John schools where they re-educate you so that you don't want to see sex workers. That's part of your, um, a part of the penalty. Do you still want to have sex at all? <laughs> I don't know, and I think they still go and see sex workers. I think they just have to go, you know, they have to sit there with these other guys. Oh. I will not see it. It's a bit like an AA meeting sort of situation. So there's, you know, so you, but it's hard to get, it's hard to get information about clients is what I'm saying. Yeah. But in terms of that legal framework, so New South Wales was, was that one of the first places in the It was the, the first world? place in the world to decriminalise sex work, and it's still only one of two places in the world to decriminalise sex work. So we decriminalised sex work in New, in New South Wales in 1995 and um, New Zealand did it nationwide in 2003. So we've still got just New South Wales and New Zealand and that's it. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's should, pretty we amazing. We take a moment to appreciate that. Yeah. We are the world leaders That's in right. decriminalising sex. Yep. What makes you proud to be a New South Wales person, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> it does. It's, it's, it's an us. amazing statistic. But it's also very depressing because it means the rest of the world... It's fucked. Yeah. <laughs> besides New Zealand, <laughs> has not um, followed New South Wales' lead. And um, that's, that's, fair, that's very significant, you know, for women and men uh, every, everywhere in the world. You know, we've, the sex worker rights movement evolved at the same time as the gay rights movement. They were sharing the same alleyways and the same, <laughs> the yep. same toilets and yep. the same... Yeah. So they were, you know, they were doing it together. They were being charged in, with similar types of offences and similar laws. And the gay movement, you can get married. Sex work is still illegal in most of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So it's, it's a, there's a big difference between what happened um, with sex worker rights and what happened with gay rights. It just went like that. And if the opposite of intimacy is violence, then the decriminalisation of sex work has been great for reducing violence against sex workers, oh, hasn't it? Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. It's been amazing. Like I've just... Um, in New Zealand in particular, there's been a lot of work about... Um, the, the impact of decriminalisation on sex workers. For instance, um, a couple of years ago, um, a sex worker was with a client and he wouldn't pay her the right amount for the, for the service. She was a street worker, so she hailed down a police car. The police, she, they said, where's the client? She said, he's over there. They went and got the client, drove him home to get his wallet, took him to the ATM machine and he had to give the woman her money. <laughs> now, that was reported online everywhere yep. and that was the first time anywhere ever in the world that that's been able to occur and it was able to occur because sex work was decriminalised. Yep. So the sex worker could appeal to the police for support and, and so, you know, there's those sort of stuff, but it is amazing. It is amazing, yeah. Yeah, it is. And what about clients um, who are not typical, so clients with disabilities or oh, aged yes. care clients? So what's, what's your research in, into... Oh, it's not really my... My research is on the history of decriminalisation and the select committee in 1985. <laughs> but look, no, honestly, um, the disability... 
most sex workers will say that they've seen disabled clients and a lot of sex workers will say that that's one of their favourite parts of the job. Um, family planning in New South Wales provides um, uh, rooms for sex workers to go along and, edu and educate other sex workers on, on servicing people with disabilities, servicing clients with disabilities. Um, relatives of people with disabilities often approach sex workers, especially in New South Wales, to come and see their, their, their elderly parents in, 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 um, who are in aged care facilities. I know sex workers who go into those facilities and provide services. That's not possible when it's illegal, but certainly there are sex workers who specialise in that, especially older sex workers um, who, you know, who can relate to, to elderly people and their families, yeah. and their families feel safe with engaging them and having a relationship with them. That's an extraordinarily intimate sort of thing to yeah. do and you have to negotiate with the person with the with the um, with the service itself you know I'm here today to have sex with Joe in his room you know we don't want to be disturbed you know can we draw the curtains and all that sort of stuff so it's quite a big it's quite a big part of your work yeah yeah I mean, and something that's worth worth saying is that so we're talking about intimacy, intimacy and so each of us on this panel is an expert on some form of sexuality that is seen as a threat mm -hmm. to intimacy, whether that's sex robots or pornography or sex work. And one of my problems with that kind of model is that it sets up the ideal that married monogamous 50-year relationships are the ideal for intimacy, mm. as though there's no problems in them. If you can just get married, and be monogamous, everything will be fine. And statistically, that is not the case. Um, the, the heterosexual, monogamous, married uh, duo, um, uh, uh, duo uh, feminism in the 70s was fighting against that as the, the breeding ground for violence against women, for power relationships, for really unpleasant um, power struggles. And also, there are many, many, this is not something I've got statistics on, this is just based on watching family Christmases, but there are many, many, <laughs> Um, monogamous um, married couples who, they are not intimate. One no. person's in the kitchen doing the salad, the other person's out doing the barbecue, and they barely see each other for three minutes a day. So just setting up that as the ideal of intimacy, I think is really problematic as well. Mm -hmm. yep. mm. And in terms of um, uh, disability, uh, and, and as far as sex robots mm. go, I mean, I know in the Netherlands, they, the government subsidises uh, 12 sessions per year for disabled people to be able to see a sex worker. Mm, really? Have you heard that stuff? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, mm. amazing. Mm. And I, I think sex robots can really... It should be on Medicare, definitely. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, well ask. I, yeah, I think we should have... <laughs> yeah, sure. Should we ask Scott? <laughs> I think we should have sex robots in uh, nursing homes. Yep. And I know that's probably really controversial saying that. But if someone is mentally active, why would we deny them the opportunity to have sex? Isn't sex a fundamental right? We know that sex is good for Well, that's a, that's a tricky... So um, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm throwing it out there. It's probably... What do you think, Eurydice? About whether it's a human right? No, I don't think it's a right to have sex. As long as it doesn't impinge on the rights of others, I think everyone has a... Oh, you have the right to act, right. yeah. Well, I think you have the right to, to, to do what you want with your body. Yeah, to, to, obviously, yeah. 
Obviously, I think sex workers have the right to decide whether they charge for sex or not. Yeah, so I guess in that way. Well, yeah, as I said, right. as long as it doesn't impinge on someone else's right. So if sure. you say, I have a right to have sex and I have a right to have sex with that person, well, then clearly you're impinging on their rights. Mm. But I, I think if we, we see that sexual self-determination is, is an important thing, then that naturally ex extends itself to, well, don't people who are in nursing homes who still have a sexual appetite, don't they deserve to be able to have sex? Aren't we just infantilising them by saying, no, 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 that's, that's not nice, you can't do that because you're, you know, 75 years of age or you're 80? I, I feel like that's talking down to people. Mm. That's my view. And just picking up as well on the point that sex is good for you, <laughs> which physically it is in all kinds of ways, there is there's a worrying trend, and it ties into this moral panic about um, isolation. There's a worrying trend I'm seeing that some sex therapists and psychologists are starting to worry that people are having are masturbating too much. <laughs> so there's a, a concern that because of whether it's because of online porn or whatever that young people, always young men, are, are masturbating too much and so they're not going out and having real relationships. <laughs> they're, they're, they're in their rooms masturbating. And that's nonsense. It's nonsense because for decades sex therapists have realised that masturbation is good in many ways. In terms of s simple physiological function, it, it, it makes your heart function better, it makes you generally more healthy, but in, it, it's, it's nice <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. But also, it helps you to work out what you like sexually. And in terms of sexual agency, it's, it makes your relationships better if you know what you like, so you can tell people what it is that you like. And that's why it was so worrying for me that I was talking about these, uh, the 14-year-old young woman in our focus groups who were saying, no, that's, that's for boys to touch down there. It makes it very difficult for them to give active consent if they don't know what it is that they want. So masturbation is great. Now, people worry about masturbation addiction. It's like any other addiction. You can get addicted to anything. You get addicted to masturbation just like you can get addicted to exercise or shopping. But it's only at the point at which you are not able to conduct your everyday life that it becomes problematic. It doesn't matter if you're masturbating six or seven times a day, so long as you're still getting to your job on time and doing a job properly and cooking, <laughs> cooking whatever meals you have to cook and making sure your kids are in bed on time. So long as you are managing to conduct the rest of your life well, it doesn't matter how often you masturbate or how much you enjoy it. Is it because you, we Ellen. have a narrow view of sex? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Is it because we have a, such a narrow view of sex, though? I mean, this heteronormative um, insistence that it's penis meets vagina and that you to have sex, you have to have another person... An, a person. A only one. Distinct. Yeah, only one person. So <laughs> is, it, is the problem here with the definition of sex itself? We've, we've got all the way through this panel without using the word heteronormative. So um, <laughs> given that you've got three academics on the stage, we should probably do that for you. So heteronormative is a word generated by academics which describes the way in which cultures try to control our sexual behaviour and say there's only one correct way of having sex. Now, the word yeah. itself... For is free and heteronormative. Absolutely. <laughs> and the weird thing is, the word is misleading because heteronormative doesn't necessarily mean heterosexual. Mm. What it means is you should only have sex with one other person, that you should only have sex with somebody you love, that you shouldn't pay for it, that it shouldn't be in public, 
that there shouldn't be any pornography involved. So it's like the, uh, the heteronormative ideal can be gay, so long as you are a happily married gay couple in the suburbs doing it for love. Um, and it's weird, because hetero means different, and in fact, heteronormativity means only one way of doing things. So I agree, absolutely. We, we still live in a profoundly heteronormative culture, and that's one of the things that worried me about gay marriage. I mean, I'm 100% for gay marriage, 100% for it. Um, I'm also, to quote Sharon Needles from RuPaul's Drag Race, I'm 100% for gay divorce. That's what, we're really, we're, that's what we've been hanging out for, is the right for queers to fuck it up in exactly the same ways <laughs> as heterosexuals fuck it up. It's not about uh, um, idealising marriage as being ideal. Marriage is a terrible institution in many ways, but everybody should have the same access to that same terrible institution. Mm. Mm. Uh, by the way, I'm married, so don't tell my husband I said any of that. <laughs> Just thinking back to the 14-year-old girls, because that is a really disturbing, um, really, really disturbing um, outcome. Um, and it occurs to me that it's, I mean, obviously it's not the fact of any of these technologies or changes, but from whose point of view we're looking at, right? And the, the sex robots, so, you know, it, they're obviously really all like pornography is highly gendered, sex robots and sex work. If we're thinking of both the providers and the consumers, they're all highly gendered yeah. ex experiences, yeah. right? Um, and that's not the only thing that's going on, of course. I mean, we obviously live in patriarchy and that, you know, down the patriarchy, but um, we have to also think of these technologies and how they're um, and how they're shaping it. So it's not only the fact of the sex robot or the pornography, or, or sex work, but, you know, how... Um, th basically, they're not neutral technologies that, that we're... Um, mm. so they're social constructs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, maybe... It, well, we've just got a couple of minutes before we lead into question time, but maybe, Belinda, if you talked about the, um, the, the homosexuality, actually, around the, um, the online site that you've been looking at. Oh, so I did some research on the world's biggest discussion forum for sex robot and sex doll enthusiasts, 50,000 members internationally. Uh, I did some research and I was uh, looking at the way that they were talking about their, their, their dolls and, and their partners. Uh, they call them their dollies. Uh, and it was really quite fascinating because they, they talked about how intimate they, they were with their dollies. Uh, they share photos. Uh, and uh, images and describe their dollies. They, they quote pieces of poetry, song lyrics to their dollies. One that I can recall is Rolling Stones, The Girl with Faraway Eyes. Does, that, <laughs> does anyone know that song? It's, a, it's way back catalogue, Rolling Stones. But, but that was one of the, uh, the songs that was, was often quoted. And it's such an amazing community of mostly heterosexual, um, this is, I'm quoting from the research here, heterosexual, white, single, gainfully employed men who are bonding with one another in a, in a homosocial sense over their dolls. That, that was really the, that's the biggest finding about my research. It's, it's like the doll forum is the new men's shed. <laughs> um, it's, it's where they get to interact uh, with one another oh. 
And I, I often I wonder, is it, is it the sex doll or is it the opportunity to feel part of a, well, a welcoming, inclusive yeah, well, community? That, those lists where the clients all jump in, they're doing a lot of that there. They're bonding with a lot of... Uh, on those lists, like, oh, I was like that too, and you know, thank you for saying that. And that yeah, sense so of they're gratitude. doing that, they're yeah. doing that, and they're doing that also in the forums where they rate sex workers in a much more, you know, unpleasant way, really. Right. But um, on Twitter, they're doing it in a very positive way. You know, thank you, I can't wait to see you, and aren't you lucky, and I live such and such, so I can't go and see, you know, you, but, you know, I'd love to see you and all that sort of stuff. But they're bonding with each other, yeah. So that's, that's interesting, they do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, yeah this, they do that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, and how nice that you can feel uh, part of a community. <laughs> it's, it's just an online discussion forum, but every one of these members, these 50,000 members, and I've trawled through hundreds and hundreds of their messages, and, and it's this sense of gratitude. Thank you so much. It's almost become a norm of the site. Um, thank you so much. I'm so glad I found this community. It's great that we have a space where we can um, share stories and talk about our dollies. They have their own language, so a series of acronyms. Um, mm. Some of it's quite fruity, mm. Um, such as BT, Brown Town, for anal sex. Uh, they will talk about GF, girlfriend. Mm. Uh, they have a hierarchy, a, a system of, uh, in terms of authority, who has the most authority and, and mm. deserves respect in the doll forum. There's the doll oracle. There is um, the doll mentor, the doll advisor. And it's, it's this really interesting, uh, yeah, hierarchy of who is to be respected in this community. Mm. Um, so... Right. And, and just going, going back to how, we, how, how you asked that question about... So the, the 14-year-old girls who had learned that masturbation was wrong and dirty, um, it was from parents in schools that they learned that because the message they got in sex education was boys will want to have sex with you. You will not want to have sex with boys because nice girls don't want to have sex, so we'll teach you how to say no. And, Alan, where is this... Queensland or New South Wales? So this is Queensland and New mm. South Wales. And this is this state research. curriculum? And the, so so it's not... It's This is progressive curriculum. Mm -hmm. This is comprehensive, yeah. age-appropriate sex yeah. education. But there's... It's been... In, in Britain, in America, in Australia, it's all the same message. The What they teach in schools is how not to get pregnant. It's what they call plumbing and procreation. What the kids want is... But relationships, how to start, manage, end a relationship, and how to make sex more, more sexually satisfying. No parent or school teaches any of that to kids, mm -hmm. except for one girl whose mum was a nurse, mm -hmm. who, um, who was, had a very positive attitude towards masturbation. Mm. Mm. That's sobering. Um, we have some time for questions, and I'm sure you have many questions for our panel. So um, for Eurydice, Alan, or Belinda, or for the panel um, in general. And... Julie is at the back and she has the microphone. Oh, okay. Um, thanks for that. It was really interesting. Um, something that occurred throughout the panel was that a lot of this is being analysed through the male gaze, the industry, the need for sex robots. It's very to service the whims of men. And that was really reinforced through that forum discussion that just sounds like middle-aged straight white men supporting other middle-aged straight white men to do the things that middle-aged straight white men always want to do. Um, and so what's... I guess I'm pointing at Belinda maybe, but I think you all can comment 
on this is in a time where many of us are really striving for an acknowledgement of gender fluidity, sexual fluidity and gender equity, um, what do you think the relationship is between this rise of a technology industry that services the needs of the patriarchy and our liberation from the patriarchal norms that we're kind of pushing back against? I think part of the problem is that the sex robot market is a microcosm of Silicon Valley. That, that's my personal view, that it, it tends to be um, a, a specific demographic of, of white men. Uh, and I, I do think we need more diversity, absolutely, more gender diversity uh, in, the in the sex robots that, that we do see. At the moment, as I said, it's more, you know, Barbarella meets Baywatch sort of thing. Uh, I'd really like to see a, a whole panoply of different um, racially, e ethnically and, and, and gender diverse sex robots on offer. We do know with sex dolls there, there is um, a trans uh, sex doll that you can purchase uh, from Real Doll and that's uh, one of the branches of Matt McMullen's company. Uh, and, and that's a positive move, I think, absolutely. But I... I, I totally hear what you're saying and I agree with you that we do need to see more diversity and not even just human diversity. Let's see some alien diversity. <laughs> Let's see an abstracted <laughs> sex robot that doesn't look human. I, and I mean, I know this is something that I found in the, the sex doll forums when they were talking about Harmony, the sex robot. A lot of the men were saying, can I get one with, with pointy elfin ears? And is it, is it possible to have one that looks like Avatar from the, the James Cameron film? You know, that this Amazonian, gorgeous, you know, eight-foot-tall blue person. Um, so why don't, why don't we see that? If that caters to someone's uh, sexual predilections and, and, and interests and preferences, sure, why not? So I, I, I do think that we need, and I suppose that's part of our job too, I, I think, is, is to, to push for more diversity and, and, and to push for, and that will, that I think is, is going to be as a result of the market broadening for sex robots because it's mainly uh, white heterosexual men who are the, the, the target market for sex robots. We're just seeing a particular type uh, of, of sex robot, but but I think once the market broadens, then we're going to see more more diverse sex robots, and I, I think that would be a really positive move. I don't know whether that answers your question. Well, um, <clears throat> okay, so yes, I, I, I take take your point, yes, uh, but for in the area where 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 I work and where I do my research. Um, to challenge the sort of world that, that we live in, uh, we would have to have law reform, obviously. So for me, it's fairly, you know, the answer to your question is fairly simple. We make it an equal playing field so that it, women do have a choice. If they want to charge money for sex, they're not going to be thrown into jail. Or, yeah. So that, it's a fairly straightforward for me, yeah. In, in terms of pornography, I think, I think the sex robot... The more expensive the R&D for a product, the more it tends towards mainstream and conservative to get a larger market for it, which is why Hollywood blockbusters are always more socially conservative than cheaper forms of, of entertainment. So as pornography becomes increasingly cheap, 
new actors enter into the market. And so pornography is much less binary, white, heterosexual now than it was 20, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, do you know the Crash Pad series? Okay, I highly recommend Crash Pad series made by Pink and White Productions. So it's a, a black queer filmmaker called Shine Louise Houston, and it's this series of videos set in the Crash Pad. It's a space in San Francisco, so the story goes, where dykes and queers and um, a whole range of gender non-conforming and race-diverse people, the only exception is no cis men. But apart from that, every other gender queer and racialing, um, they get the key, and you can take the key and take anybody else in there and just fuck the brains out of them, and then you pass the key on to somebody else. And it's, it's winning awards left, right, and center for queer porn, feminist porn, diverse porn. I highly recommend it. Thank you for the interesting discussion. I'm just thinking um, kind of about that, the idea of education and sex toys or um, thinking about them maybe as like sex tools and how they might factor into education. Like when I went through high school, we had these kind of humorous um, bananas and you'd take, you'd pull off the skin of the banana and I inside it was a, a, um, a penis and then would practice putting condoms on them. Mm -hmm. And that strikes me as a very, um, well, it's, it's a dildo that they're, that they're giving out to young girls and it's useful for the task at hand. But I wonder if that's kind of a transformative way of thinking about sex dolls um, as like a, a learning experience. Mm -hmm. Something that's not quite the same, but it brings me to answering your question. Um, there's this book called I'll Show You Mine, and it's a coffee table book, beautifully produced, which is on the right-hand side, 100 photographs of big color photographs of uh, women's vulvas. And on the left-hand side, there's a paragraph where the woman writes about her relationship with her vulva and her vagina. And I think that would be an incredible thing to hand out to every school kid, both um, boys and girls, because one of the biggest problems is if the only sex education people are getting is from mainstream porn, then they don't even realize that a lot of women have labia. They don't realize you can have pubic hair. So just showing people this part of the body is different and it would be great. I've mentioned the idea to a few educators, you could never do that in Australia. The world would have to change so dramatically before you could do that. So if you can't even do that, the idea of kind of giving kids dildos to play with I don't think is going to fly. But that's a problem of where we are, not necessarily a problem with the idea. I didn't, I had no, I mean, I'm not an expert in education, but I had no idea there was such a resistance. I thought we were quite progressive with sex education. and I mean, I know safe schools had a backlash, but I thought safe schools was in there to begin with mm. because, because there was quite a lot of sort of openness around... Australia? Mm. Well, yeah, well, there's recently been quite a controversial kind of exchange on Twitter from... Uh, workers who are sex, sex educators in the States um, who have worked previously as um, providers, sex providers, being fired from their job uh, doing sex education in, in the schools in the United States because they found out that they've been a sex worker. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just... It, it, in the States, it's just crazy yeah. what is and what isn't allowed in the schools and what's considered suitable. Oh, yeah, I suitable. This, I knew the so, US uh, yeah, so I don't, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know what's happening here. It's interesting yeah. that, that Alan and others, others do, but I just thought I'd throw that in. It's, it's, it's completely mad. Mm. Um, it differs from state to state mm. in Australia. Um, 
most schools, most schools, not all schools, it's not compulsory for every school in Australia to have sex and relationship education. Mm-hmm. Most schools have some form of it, so we're progressive in that sense, but it's very much in the medical model. Mm-hmm. It's very much about learning about... I mean, one of the things that always stuck with me was one of the, the, young, the, the young women, the, the 14-year-old girls in our focus group, when I asked them, what's in your sex education classes? She said, did you know that the protein coating of the HIV virus is constantly evolving and that's why they can't develop an antiretroviral to cure it? Right. And it's like, Yeah, really? there's a lot about HIV. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, scaring. Okay. Yeah, okay. I know I think my most, sons. Most know kids that. these days have a greater understanding of the biochemistry of STIs mm. than a professor of <laughs> immunology would have had 50 years ago. Okay. <laughs> do they still do Healthy Harold? Have you? I don't know. <laughs> do, do you remember Healthy a, Harold? I remember I'm, Healthy Harold. There's another question. Yeah, it was a, yeah. <laughs> um, I've, from the talk that's been going on, I feel a bit like intimacy. Oh, <laughs> I feel a bit like intimacy is waving at me from the window over there somewhere. <laughs> and the is this the end of intimacy Would, could you eat what do you mean by intimacy so if um, what what do you feel is being left behind or left out what kind of intimacy i don't know okay but intimacy is a very important thing yeah definitely and where fabulous talk yeah. <laughs> um but i would just like to hear how you each feel this relates to it I was trying to work out, I mean, this may not answer your question, but I I take your point, because I've been thinking a lot about intimate, what is intimacy and how I I get it. And um, uh, I don't want to make light of of what you've said, but this is my most intimate experience this year, was um, when I had a colonoscopy, right? (laughs) So, yeah, right, okay, you know what I mean. So... um, I'm lying on a, you know, I'm wheeled into the operating theatre, your bottom's, yeah, up like this, the surgeon comes in with his gloves and stuff like that, and you think, oh, God, you know, I'm going to find out whether I've got bowel cancer or not. My father had died, just a bit of background, my father had died of bowel cancer last year. So, and it was the same surgeon who'd taken him through that process and been with him in the hospital over 11 weeks while he didn't really recover from bowel surgery and he died. And the surgeon came in and I saw him and I thought, I trust you, I like you, I'm glad I'm here, we're sharing something together. (laughs) And then I go out to it, yeah, in the anaesthetic. But for me, that was the most intimate experience. I was connected through my father through the idea of life and death, yeah, and trust and na- being naked and being vulnerable. And that, you know, I realised that that was the most intimate experience. So I don't th- I suppose what I'm saying is it doesn't always have to come through sex, you know, that it can be there, but it can be in other things and it's about vulnerability and trust and, and love, yeah? So that's my... Yeah, I... I... I, I love sex, <laughs> and I love intimacy, and my point is merely that the, the two are not the same thing and don't have to be related. I, I, I totally agree with, with your idiocy. I mean, I have a very intimate relationship with my husband. It, uh, we, we, we listen to each other, and I try very hard to be, 
to be present and to spend quality time and to have conversations that matter and to do things that make him happy and he does things that make me happy. And I do that with my friends as well. And I have friends, that's why I talked about we queers honed and developed families um, that we choose, that I have people in my life whom I rely on absolutely when I'm vulnerable and when I'm hurting, who I can trust will look after me and bring me in, and it's not just my husband. And even people at work, I try really hard to have genuine, authentic relationships with people that I work with. And being here now, having this experience with Belinda and Eurydice, I'm loving it, and it really feels like we're sharing something genuine and real as we're doing this. There's all these moments of intimacy these opportunities that we have, and I try to grasp them every time I can. So the word intimacy comes from the Latin intimer, which means to make familiar. And I, I really love that, that definition. It's, uh, intimacy, uh, for me, is very much about familiarity and, and, and closeness. And I suppose uh, sex robots, I think, can lead to potentially new configurations of intimacy. Maybe they will teach us something about ourselves, about how we can be more intimate with our partners. Uh, and I think there's a no I mean, I am a tech optimist, but I think that there's enormous potential for sex robots to teach us uh, not only how better to relate to us, but also how, how better to relate to our partners. Uh, thanks for the discussion. Uh, would you consider masturbation intimacy? And I was interested in the panellists' comments before when you related all your intimate relationships with other people. You didn't give one example where you had an intimate relationship with an inanimate object. So if masturbation is a form of intimacy... Yep. That's an interesting <laughs> philosophical question. Eurydice, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have thought about that, actually, yeah. Um... Yeah, I think, like, as Alan was saying, it can be a way of getting to know yourself and what your desires are and what your limits are and what, you know... So I think it can be. I think masturbation can be, especially if you're doing it with someone else. <laughs> it can be yes, absolutely. If you're masturbating somebody else, yes, that's yeah. interesting. Yes. So, you know, there's different... Yeah. 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 I don't know, because... Um, there's, I mean, there's, there's wider questions about do, the degree to which people have intimate relationships with any kind of inanimate object um, not just sexual objects I mean, well there are sexual kind of to what extent do women who use vibrators feel fondly towards them, do you give them names I don't know but kind of I haven't seen any research on that but then kind of non-sexual things as well, um, are there objects in your life non-sexual objects that you would be really really upset if you lost it, does that count as intimacy I don't know mm. I mean, if we think about intimacy, uh, giving gifts would be an intimate gesture. And so giving the gift to yourself in, in terms of masturbation, then that's a form of intimacy. Yeah. Um, our clients, clients are often... Um, if you look at why, what, what's important to clients of uh, sex workers, there's quite a lot of uh, male clients who want the sex worker to um, 
to get as much sexual enjoyment out of the experience as they do. Yeah? So for them, it's also about, give, you know, that they can give pleasure and they like to think that that's, you know, that that's part of what they're doing and that takes them closer. You know, I actually, she actually came, you know. <laughs> you know, she, she comes, you know, <laughs> go and see her. <laughs> this sort of stuff. So, the, you know, it's a two-way thing, isn't it? It's not just what you are experiencing. It's like, can you make them feel close to you as well? Yeah. So that happens with sex work, yeah. But it's bounded, you know. There's this, um, uh, there's a whole, there's a researcher called Elizabeth Bernstein who's written whole books about um, clients and sex workers and intimacy and what does she call it? Um, God, bounded intimacy or something like that. So you you create the circumstances and you know where it begins and ends and you have an understanding of you know what to do. I mean, there are clients. One of the reasons that people that uh, males go and see female, female um, sex workers is because they will feel that the woman or the sex worker is more likely to initiate sex. So that's an interesting idea too, that they're having casual sex and they're going on Tinder and they've got multiple partners and they might even be married, but there, there's an unwillingness, and I think this, this goes back to, I think, what you were talking about, the 14-year-old girl. You know, there's still... Um, women or females tend to be less inclined to initiate sex. So, you know, that's that's part of what clients are looking for. Like, I want a woman to come on to me. I want to feel desirable. I want, you know, mm. I want someone to kind of, you know, I don't want to always be the, the one initiating the, the sex. So that's another thing that kind of brings brings you closer, I think, yeah. Got time for one more question? Yeah. Yeah, I've got one question around. Um, rem- I suppose what I'm trying to get is rem- like remote communities. So uh, oh. um, something like uh, I don't know the Navy or um, a mining community yes. or places where people might be already living in close quarters, having very intimate relationships, but how that perhaps is changing those people's use of uh, whether it be pornography or sex workers or sex robots and you know, yeah. are, are the experience of those people a little bit different from, say, a city dweller? Yeah, I, think, I, I definitely think there's a lot more clients in those sorts of male-dominated works and communities. Queensland. <laughs> Queensland's a big, big sex consumer. Uh, people who are living in mining communities. It's always been the fact that sex workers have followed military campaigns because there's a lot of men there, they want to have sex. So, you know, uh, historically there's always been sex workers kind of on the fringes of those communities providing sex services. So that that's historically that that you know lines up or ship girls in New Zealand there was a whole tradition and I'm sure that happens all over the world where there's ports, sailors come into port, you know, the army's in town, um, the sex workers come and service those those communities. Yeah, sure. And I think that sex robots will will come into that. Yeah, I, and if they can afford it. You know, this at the moment it's very high end that sort of service, of course. You could buy a, a sex doll for a couple of hundred dollars, yeah. uh, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, there's there's just not enough research at the moment about sex robots. It, it's still such a such a you know a niche, 
uh, it's still so new that I, I, I mean, I think it's a great question that you've asked. Mm. Uh, and I'd really like to know what, what the stats are on that. Um, how many people in regional communities versus urban centres would, would have a use for a, a sex robot, for instance? Mm. Unfortunately, I have to wrap it up now, but maybe um, a question for after the session. Um, so maybe everyone can join me in, in thanking Eurydice, Alan and Belinda for the fabulous panel today. You've been listening to Talk of the Town here on 2SCR 107.3. Our talk this week was Is This the End of Intimacy? A UTS event from this year's Vivid Ideas. For this and more Talk of the Town, go to 2SCR or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Steph Leong. Thanks for listening.